again to the strange brew podcast that was sam brown and doll from her new album number eight her first album in 15 years singer songwriters had a remarkable career in music that we'll be covering today and a remarkable story so let's hear my chat with sam hello nice to meet you jason you all right hi sam must be a really good period given um what you've gone through and a, a new chapter in a way very much a new chapter, yes. Well, it's been 15 years since I last did a record, so yeah, it's good. I'm really enjoying it. I'm, I'm as surprised as anybody by the, the music. I'm not really quite sure how it happened. <laughs> I've heard the album, and I think the first track being released is Doll, and um, I was listening back to your, your solo albums, and, and you do have different sides and, and different ways of uh, presenting your music, and it's very innovative and varied and, and this continues that path as well yeah I think it is it's very much a departure in that I've never really gone down the sort of electronic route but because I have to really use a lot of water well all the vocals are completely auto-tuned so it kind of suited that you know using sequences and not using real instruments seemed to suit that sort of style of, of vocal even though uh, while people sort of say that it still sounds like me but to me 
you know, I don't have anything like the vocal freedom that I used to have. And I like that it all sounds a bit programmed and I kind of, I've really enjoyed doing that. But at times you've had electronics and rhythms in your music. Yeah. As a whole, it, it might be new, but actually there are elements that go back to your, your earlier solo albums. Yeah, definitely. I think you're right. I mean, I, I love sequence stuff and I've certainly used that. And I don't know, I think there was a time when like the second and third album where it was quite a heavy band and we did a lot of live work and that was quite sort of rock almost. I think it was a bit sort mm. of hubby, bluesy rock. <laughs> she doesn't sound terribly good, does it? But uh, we had good fun. But that wasn't really, that was more a reflection of everyone who I was working with rather than what I actually do myself, um, which I think came later in Of The Moment. And certainly you're you're absolutely right. There's quite a lot of secret stuff on Of The Moment. And those lyrics, especially from your later albums, remain very personal. And for me, that's the thing that connects as a listener, because you get to hear the true voice of the artist and tribe. I'm reaching out, I'm reaching in. There's some real sort of lyrical elements where hopefully as listeners will be able to connect again to you. Yes, I think I've definitely always had a quite a dark side to what I do lyrically. But it seems that it's particularly more acceptable now to have that darkness in the lyrics, um, which I I love because in the past people would be well, it's a bit miserable, isn't it? You know, do you want to? But now with the in the current in the world now, it's more people are very aware of mental health health issues, and so I think it's okay to sort of say actually this isn't all right for me. You know, this is a bit shit. But uh, I hope it's not all like that. And certainly a lot of the lyrics on this album, rather than being personal and about myself, are about atmospheres that I've picked up just through living in today's world. Yeah. And one of the song, It's OK, It's OK to be Broken. But actually, I think that's how many people feel. And then you get comfort in realising that you're not alone and actually following that acceptance of that particular feeling or status in your life actually you can then move on and then you can the positivity comes through yeah I think you're right and and actually I I've always loved listening to music but I didn't really quite realize how important it was for people to be able to relate to lyrics until I lost my voice if that makes sense hmm. because then I was listening to music and really hearing it in a different way almost and really picking up on the lyrics and I guess you when you listen to a lyric that you love you kind of apply it to yourself and your own life, don't you, in a way? it's You sort of live that feeling with the artist. So, yeah, hopefully people will relate to it. Um, there's a lot of stuff in there. <laughs> My favourite track from your album number eight is Ghosts. Oh, yeah, yeah. That really worked as a, a very moving piece of music. Oh, oh, well, I'm really glad you like it. Uh, it's It's kind of the odd one out a bit, I think, in that it's, it's not sort of up and dancey. It's more, I think, got a slightly sort of French 70s filmic vibe to it. Certainly that was kind of how it started out. I'm not sure, you know, when you work on music, it sometimes goes off into a different direction. But I like the idea of a ghost sort of watching over their partner after they've gone is quite nice. And and the French cafe. And uh, I think it creates a picture, which is, which is hopefully a good one, even though it's talking about death. <laughs> Was the COVID period where you often confined to your house, was that an element in relation to this album in that you had the space to start crafting the music? Definitely. I mean, I don't think it wouldn't have ha it would have happened if it hadn't been for 
that time that I had at home. Um, I mean, obviously, I was still busy because I'm self-employed, so you obviously have to still make money somehow. But, uh, yeah, I think having the headspace was a really big thing. It was brilliant. We just we wrote every Tuesday, Danny and I, and just literally like this, you know, I say, oh, I've got this idea and plonk something on the keyboard and he'd go, oh, yeah, you could do this. And then he'd do a drum track. So I've never really worked remotely like that before. And I really enjoyed it. It was really good.
you come from such a fantastic musical family. Was it always obvious that you wanted to be involved in being an artist in music from an early age, or did that come in, in your teens? Um, no, I think it was. I don't know that my mum and dad were really sort of paying attention to that, so I don't know if it was obvious to them or not, but we had a recording, one of the first multi-track recording studios when I was very little in the late 60s called The Grange, and so I grew up with the recording process and whilst my brother really is the engineer and producer in the family I still am very comfortable with that and being in the studio is one of one of my happy places I suppose but uh yeah I just always did music I started writing when I was about 13 um my mum played piano and you know there weren't it wasn't sort of like the Cassidy's where everybody was kind of sitting around playing guitars it was more my mum and dad were never there, so you could get on with what you liked. <laughs> it's kind of how it worked. So, yeah, I suppose it was obvious in a way, although I sort of came from the punk era. So for me, I think the biggest problem I had was the music I was writing was not like the music that everyone was listening to, you know. So, yeah, it was. And I started working really professionally with my mum when I started doing backing vocals but I'd already started writing songs before then. Although I've got to say they were pretty shit, to be honest with you, Jason. <laughs> I think you were on at least one with your mum, one of those uh, late Small Faces albums in, in, yeah. in the late 70s in the shade. And I, yeah. I can hear you and your mum in, in full voice. <laughs> yeah, you can't you can't miss my mum's voice, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> is that your dad's song, Soldier Boy, on, on that album? Yeah, it is. He wrote it. I don't know if he co-wrote it, but he definitely wrote it. And it's a shame, really, because my dad's a fantastic writer, but he's just got no confidence whatsoever. So his 70 years or 60 years, whatever it is, doing what he's done uh, as a performer. Um, I, I write with my dad, actually. Recently, I've been writing with him, and he really is a, a great writer. I am a soldier. Ask me what I'm fighting for Is that strange? Does that sound strange? And if I told you The same old story just once more Would it change? Would it change?
came to the world's attention with Stop. I've read that part of that song came to you when you were in LA. <laughs> Sounds dead fancy, doesn't it? It does, uh, it does. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I'll paint the picture for you. So it was, uh, it was 1985 and I signed to a company called Rondor Music, who were the sister company to AM Records. And the head of the, of the publishing company, Stuart Hornell, who's a Scottish bloke, he said, I want to send you out to co-write with a load of people in L.A. So I said, well, OK. So I was nine. Oh, how old was I? 20 or something. And I went out there with my spots and acne and dungarees <laughs> and not really being very show business at all. But I did meet some fabulous people and I wrote with loads of people. So as a professional writer, you know, you turn up and you'll do a morning session with someone or you'll do a whole day. And you'll just try and, you know, knock out a couple of songs. Um, and I met Greg Sutton and we'd, I think the first thing that happened was I sang on one of his tracks and then uh, I was going to be writing with him. And I just had the idea for stop while I was driving along in the car and sort of said, what did you think of this? And that was it, really. When it was first released, it was only a minor hit and then then was re-released and became a huge hit. And that's quite a moment for an artist, really, where you have that shift on top of the pops and front in there. And then also you've got the record company and potentially pressures there. How was that shift at the time for you in relation to that moment? Well, first of all, I was never particularly ambitious. And I, I signed a deal because I'd always written songs and, I, you know, I wanted to make an album. But I, I'd been around celebrity and success my whole life and... I didn't really like that side of it. So so it was brilliant that it was a hit. And it, and certainly it didn't they didn't play it on the radio uh, in the UK. Uh, and it was only after it was a hit around Europe that they then revisited it and it you know went on the radio. But I think initially it was very exciting. But then after I think about 3 years of just doing promotion and not doing any music and doing photo sessions and interviews, which I actually find really interesting, but not doing music was not a good way for me to live. And I think that was the start of me thinking, actually, I'm not sure this is the way of life that I want, because if you do have a hit record, you have to maintain that popularity. And in order to do that, you have to put music on the back burner. And I think I just wasn't prepared to do that. 
And you collaborated with so many great musicians at the time. And I think this feeling even featured David Gilmore. And he was a, an artist that you were on backing vocals on his solo album, About Face. And then obviously, very famously, was one of the wonderful backing vocalists um, with Pink Floyd in the 90s, Division Bell era. Yeah. Was he someone that you and your family knew back in the 80s then? Yes. Yeah, so I, I don't know when I first met David. I think it would have been... I think it was around my mum's 40th birthday. So that would have been, yeah, the eight, uh, early 80s. Um, and he was a friend of my mum and dad's. So where we lived, we lived in Oxfordshire. And a lot of musicians lived out there. So Mick Ralphs, uh, David Gilmore, Alvin Lee, George Harrison, all these, all the old, the old set, my dad's peers. So I did meet them. I mean, they weren't people that I knew well, but I did know them. And Dave really was brilliant and took a real interest in my writing and was just very kind and helpful really he had a studio uh around the corner from where we lived so he did some of my first demos with me and then he asked me to I mean we did I did about face with mum I can't remember what year that was and then after that he he asked me to go on the road with Pink Floyd I'd actually been asked three times before I was able to say yes because you know we have rules in our family which are that if you take a job on you have to do it so Unfortunately, when I always when I was asked to do Pink Floyd, I had other things in my diary. And no matter how small they are, once you've agreed to do something, you've got to do it. So so I'm very happy to to do the the uh, Division Bell tour. Kissing Gate was a, quite a hit from your next album, April Moon. Yeah. Was that the period where relations with the record company were diverging, do you think? You know, you sort of touched on it earlier that very typically... I kind of think they wanted stop Mark II. They weren't really interested in looking in at any other aspect of what I did. And what I did was very, uh, the word gets used a lot now, but it was very eclectic. It was a huge range of different musical styles. And I think they found it very difficult to get their heads around that. But that's that was just how it came out. I didn't do it deliberately to be difficult. So I think they really wanted another soul ballad, of which I wrote many. And Kissing Gate was really Kissing Gate was a bit of a piss take because it's the sort of angst of this silly woman in stop who's like, you know, still going out with this bloke who's plainly not really sort of particularly interested in her. And so it was like, wow, is a word that's not used, but that's how I felt when I first met you. So Kissing Gate was really a sort of tongue-in-cheek look at that kind of retro type of music. But it was good, really good fun. The video to Kissing Gate is hysterical. It's very funny. It's a barroom brawl. Um, and I had a double in it, which was fascinating to meet someone who looks exactly like you. Me!
your next album, 43 Minutes, is for many possibly your best album. Maybe. This was the real shifting direction to that personal side and that was you going your own way and doing something which was beautiful and moving. Yeah, well, uh, thank you very much. Yes, it was absolutely the the turning point and reflected in the sales. You know, stop sold two million, and I think forty three minutes sold four thousand or something. I mean, I don't know what it sold now, but my mum was very ill and then uh, subsequently died of cancer. And I wrote the album during that period, and I finished the album and I'd written it as a whole piece of music. And we demoed it, and we demoed it very cheaply with some fantastic musicians, Herbie Flowers and Tony Newman and Jodie Linscott and my my brother. And the record company, the managing director's exact words were, creatively, it's brilliant, commercially, it's a disaster. And I think he wanted me to record a, you know, like a cover or something to put on the end of it, which I didn't really want to do. So we parted company, and I released it myself. And I think I'm just much more comfortable being... I suppose you have to say in control of what I do, but really it's about, I see music as art. And if you had a fantastic artist, you wouldn't sort of think of leaning over their shoulder and go, well, if you put a tree with balloons in it just there, people are going to like that painting a lot more. And it is, you just get that feeling. And I think if you want to make something, whatever it is, you have to have your own idea of what it is, what it's going to be. And you have to be free to follow that idea. And that's how I feel about music. I'm not doing it to, you know, make fortunes or or to in particularly to be famous. I'm not really interested in that. I understand that it's part of it, but the freedom that you have when you do it yourself is just fantastic. To be able to say, I don't want it like that, that I want it like this, you know, is so important, I think. I wonder if it was a reflection of the music scene at the time, but actually now would have had, if it was released now, a much wider audience. And in, in latter years, it has, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. And I, I think you're absolutely right. And, and certainly in those days, maybe it was just my record company, I don't know, but they didn't see me or sell me as a singer-songwriter. You know, they went completely with this sort of pop angle. And, you know, that's probably what made it successful or certainly part of it. But I've never really been promoted through a record company as a singer-songwriter, which is basically what I am. So, yeah, it was 43 minutes was a, a really good thing for me to have done. And I absolutely have no regrets about that at all. I love doing it. I love touring it. And it was cathartic for me. And somebody did write it's therapy. Well, you know, of course, it's therapy. I think all music is therapy for the for the maker, possibly. There's lots of highlights from that. I think uh, Sleep Like a Baby is a great example. It's it's quite ornate. And then I, I think it was a, a clarinet on it as well, which just works wonderfully. Yeah, there's clarinet and there's whistle as well. Yeah. Baby, in my arms. 
Covering some of the other highlights from your career of the moment. And again, very personal. Do right by her. You've just got that that honesty and openness again <laughs> that, that that connects. Well, yeah, I think for me of the moment was I think that's my favorite album. I kind of plucked up the courage to try and do things on my own a bit more. I love working with my brother. He's brilliant but he's quite a strong personality and I'm I'm not very confident. So if I'm working with somebody, I tend to just go, yeah, yeah, no, that's fine. That's great. You, you know, that's brilliant. And usually it is brilliant. But when you have to do it yourself, you're kind of pushed into, I suppose, expressing yourself a bit, a bit more, a bit better, a bit more succinctly. And certainly of the moment is a very personal album. I was having a nervous breakdown and I lost my voice just right at the very end of that. So I'm glad I made it and I'm proud of it as a record. And equally, I'm proud of this one. So <laughs> so were you independently releasing your music by then? Yes. 
Yeah. The last record company I worked with was Mud Hut. Right. So that was re Reboot.
Definitely worth asking about your collaboration with uh, Jules Holland, co-writing some some wonderful tracks with him. Yeah, they've had quite a lot of success and singing live with him. Um, one of those is Valentine Moon, and and that's it's like a standard in a way. It's like a song that has been there for seventy years or whatever. It's just got that timeless appeal. Was that something that you both aimed for, or was that something that Jules brought out? I think actually Stop is similar in that way, in that Stop feels like an old blues song, doesn't it? Lots of people, mm. no, nobody thought I'd written it, so, but I did, and uh, with Greg. And Valentine Moon, I think, is, we just thought we'd like to write a waltz, and we wanted it to kind of had a, have an old sort of romantic feel to it. And so, and Valentine Moon was born, and it's just, I, I love the song. It's a lovely song. I, I loved working with Jules. It was pretty much one of the best parts of my career. Um, singing with that band, having him as a friend. He's such a fantastic person. He really opens the the world of art up to everyone who's near to him, I think. And he has a really strong work ethic, which I do as well. Um, you know, he, he loves touring. He loves doing music. I'm exactly the same. I'd rather be doing that than anything else. So we we get on very well, and we did get on very well, and uh, we toured toured a lot together. Yeah, so writing was was a nice thing to do. We 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 worked fairly well together. So when did your paths cross originally? I think it was 1989. Uh, he was doing a pilot for a show called The Happening, which I think was probably the predecessor to later. And can't remember where it was. It was in a theatre. And I sang on it. I sang on it a couple of times. And then he said, do you want to come and do some gigs? So I went and did a couple of gigs with him. And then I just started touring with him, really. And I think it, it was all very relaxed. It wasn't very sort of 
you know, it's like, well, you know, if you want to come along. And and I remember the first tour I did with him, I literally had a list of the cities and they, he, they just said, well, look, these are the gigs, you know, come come to any you want. So I'd literally go, oh, yeah, I'm going to go and do this one today. It's in Halifax. So I just go to Halifax and look for the posters. You know, I didn't even have the address at the place.
So, um, yeah, it was great. They're, they're lovely people. And it gave me an opportunity to, uh, I was just treated very differently in that band. I'd always been kind of on my own or worked with my family. And for the first time, I sort of felt, I felt really good about what I was doing, I think. I I got a bit of confidence, perhaps, through that situation. Kiss of Love is another one of the great songs from from that period, and that was that was also with Nick Cave. And what was the songwriting process with Jules? Um, well, Kiss of Love, I think I started on the ukulele, and it was a waltz, and then I played it to him. I hadn't finished it. Um, and what we do is every year Jules tours in Europe. He goes out to Amsterdam, and he he's always done that, and he's tried to build a following there. And so we'd all go, well, it would usually be a pared down band because it's quite expensive to take that big band over. So we'd go over in usually February or March and Jules and I would just, he'd have a piano in his hotel room and we'd just stay on for a couple of days and uh, go to a couple of art galleries and uh, write some songs. And so, you know, one or two of us would come up with an idea and just, just work on it really.
And it was a Jules connection in relation to the concert for George. And for me, your performance on that was just one of the standout on, on Horse to Water. Just amazing, amazing. <laughs> but that original version of that obviously was with George Harrison before he passed yeah. away. And you, you were on backing vocals? Yeah, um, I think, yeah. So I, I've known George anyway, George and Olivia and Danny um, through my mum and dad. And Jules obviously knew him as well. And so I... I can't remember what happened, what the process was. He was quite unwell um, when we did the vocal on it and we went out, Jules and I went out and recorded it. Um, but, you know, the the thing is about George is that he was a really fantastic person. Um, I mean, I know, I'm sure a lot of people will think, well, that's all very well, you know, he was very lucky and I'm sure that he was very lucky, but he was very down to earth. He was very straightforward. He didn't mince his words. And he was just a really lovely man. So to be able to be involved in the concert for George has to be, you know, one of the definitely right up there in my life. I don't like saying my career because it's not my career, it's my life. But to turn up, I mean, the sound check was amazing. You've got Eric Clapton, you've got all these wonderful people there, just all being very nice and friendly. Hi, how are you doing? You know, how's your dad? Oh, yeah, he'll be along later and blah, 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 where's the tea kept, you know, do you want, do you want a cup of tea, you know, so it was very, uh, it was very comfortable, very relaxed, and and everybody was very respectful, and I just loved it, uh, I, the whole day was amazing, really amazing. And having your dad close the show as well. He did, he did, yeah, yeah, he's, uh, uh, that was, well, they, I don't know if people, I'm sure people do know, but at the end of See You In My Dreams, Olivia had arranged to have rose petals just falling down into the Albert Hall. I mean, it was absolutely incredible. And and they, you know, they transformed, they transformed the Albert Hall. There were sort of purple and gold hangings and pictures and incense. It smelt completely different to how it normally smelt. It was just an amazing experience.
we've covered Jules Holland, but actually another amazing artist that you've collaborated is John Lord. Yeah. A lot of great tracks there, many of which are almost kind of hymnal. Yeah. Um, so again, John was a really lovely, lovely man, and I knew him through my parents. My mum worked with John, and then I worked with him as well. And John said, can you write some lyrics for this tune? And he sent it over, and I was like, bloody hell, this is going to be hard, because you've got bars and bars of like this, because it's classical music. It's not like, oh, yeah, um, I went down the shops and I bought some food. Uh, unfortunately, when I got home, it wasn't very good. <laughs> you know, it's kind of not hasn't got that meter. It's got this da 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 And it goes and the melody goes on and on. And so you have to make sense of that lyrically. So it was quite a fascinating process for me. And I just love doing it. And obviously, it's very relaxing because it's such beautiful music. And uh, really loved working with John. I'm very proud of those songs. There's quite a few great ones, I think, from, um, I don't think it was the first album that you collaborated on. There's one from The Meadow, which is a highlight. And so around that time, that album, Beyond the Notes, you were his primary lyricist. I think so. I don't know if Miller, did Miller Anderson write? I don't know if he did or not, but... Yeah, I think um, most of the pieces were instrumental anyway, so... You also got to sing live? I did, I did. We did a few things. We did the 30th anniversary gig at the Albert Hall for Deep Purple for the concerto, and he played a few of his songs on that, so that was good. And there's a, a lovely... There was a lovely thing that I did, which was Wait a While, which was at the Albert Hall, and that was part of that concert... Um, one for the meadow. We did tour. I did tour with John. We went out to Germany, did a few gigs out there um, with a small uh, sort of chamber orchestra, if you like. That was a lovely thing to do as well.
I think it was an EP of yours, Ukulele and Voice. There's some versions of songs that you've recorded in albums like Over the Moon, yeah. which is a works really well in ukulele. And yeah. the ukulele is an instrument as you've got a huge affection for that <laughs> and involvement. Oh yeah, an involvement. I've got a relationship with with the bloody ukulele. Well, that EP was really uh I'd written those songs on the ukulele. So I wanted to I suppose, present them in their barest form. So it was literally just an afternoon and just recorded them pretty much live. And I am I really like it. One of the reasons I like that EP is because I think the vocals, I'd kind of been doing a lot of voice training at that point. And so I felt very comfortable with my singing voice at that point. And I'm quite proud of it from the point of view of just my singing on it, I suppose, really. is Because I think uh, quite a lot of the time when people think of me, they think of this sort of blues shouter, you know. But there's, if I may say so, quite a lot of other aspects to my voice apart from that. So I was pleased with it from that point of view. And the uke, uh, the uke was just, um, I started playing it in about... Uh, 2000 I think and I I'm really my first instrument's piano and I'm just rubbish on a guitar and I just thought I'll never be able to play a stringed instrument and I just loved playing the uke and it was so easy so I started writing I didn't know what I was doing and now I've been teaching ukulele for I think 11 or 12 years and I teach about 150 200 people a week which is bloody hard work and you don't get paid as well as doing gigs but it's great fun. It's a completely different thing. And uh, it has immersed me into the normal world. <laughs> so I sort of have to consider car parking and things like that, which I never really thought about before. But, um, yeah, so I, I love the uke. It's great. I think writing on a uke is a lovely thing to do because it's just so portable and, and easy to play.
We started discussing number eight, so it'd be good to sort of close with that. Other than some of the tracks that we've we've covered, like like Ghosts, as I said, one of my favourites. Are, are there any other songs that you're particularly fond of from from that album? Um, I think there's two that I would. I mean, Doll is the lead track on the album, just because everyone just latches onto it really quickly. So I wanted something that was quite instant. But there's two songs. I mean, I I like them all actually, and I like that you can sort of dance to the album. Um, but I think my two favourites are Tribe, also the story, because the story I'm speaking, it's not rapping. I don't know, is it rapping? I'm not quite sure, but it's got spoken word in it. And I was never a fan of that sort of thing. But I just, just because the whole musical style of this album was so completely different and my abilities are very different, I just wanted to try everything that I could. So I really like the story. I like the words. And I like Tribe as well. I like the atmosphere of Tribe. It's quite dark. You've continued that thread of opening your heart, opening yourself to people. <laughs> misery. And, and misery. No. <laughs> I find great comfort. And, and ultimately, I think it ends in, in a positive outcome, as we discussed at the start. And I think that's what makes great art is when people connect with the emotions and feelings of the music from the artists and your album and your music more generally does that and so just thank you so much for your time today it's been a real pleasure and i wish you all the continued success with uh number eight and uh thank you so much for speaking with me oh thank you jason it's been lovely to meet you all right take care yeah you take care too Like-minded souls, they do
Thank you for listening to the strange brew podcast if you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online it's 10 years since i started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time all your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests to support me just go to the strangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the home page thank you very much Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.